Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. On August 6, 1965, President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act. Here in Tucson, Congressman Raul Grijalva convened an event entitled Keeping the Promise, a community panel on the Voting Rights Act at the Tucson YWCA. Speakers discussed the promise it continues to hold for countless Americans and the ongoing efforts to undermine the promise 50 years after it has become law. Today on 30 Minutes, we'll continue in part two with attorney Vince Rabago. Now, there are many pieces to the act, and this isn't a law lecture, so I'm not going to go into all of them. But one of the most important of those that has been mentioned by the congressman was the preclearance provision. This was something that was designed to focus on states or localities that had a history, a proven record of discriminating and trying to stop people from voting in different ways. And uh, by way of example, um, so, so the Justice Department would, would review changes in the laws or changes in the procedures. It's called preclearance. So if you wanted to change your election law and you were in a state or a locality that had this history, you had to get a check mark of approval from the Department of Justice, right? Very simple, preclearance. Um, and it had been at one time meant to be a law that would only be of limited existence. The, the hope was, that, oh, we're not going to need this for that long. But history and, and our country proved us wrong, and time after time, jurisdictions kept discriminating and kept doing things to restrict people from voting. So Congress, in a bipartisan fashion, kept reauthorizing this preclearance section to allow the government to make sure that, that states uh, like North Carolina, Alabama, and even Arizona from discriminating against African Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, against people who wanted to exercise their right to vote. And so you fast forward, for example, in Arizona, just by way of history, since 1982, more than 82 objections were registered by the U.S. Department of Justice against laws or ordinances that Arizona or its counties were trying to pass. 82. So if that is not just recent historical evidence of examples where our Federal Department of Justice said, this is wrong, this law is going to discriminate, this law is going to restrict voting, it's going to impact minorities, Native Americans, African Americans. 82, believe it or not. Well, I don't need to give you a, a current history lesson on, on the composition of our legislature and the efforts to pass more laws that restrict access to, to voting, such as voter ID. Now, I want to touch back on something that, that Stu said. He said, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but look at what's happening. You don't need to be a conspiracy theorist. You don't need to be a conspiracy theorist because it's right out there in the open. You know, we had these militia-type groups. I remember when one of the races that the congressman was running when I was involved in the Democratic Party as chairman, watch out because these uh, sort of... Uh, Aryan white hate groups were going to go intimidate voters. And they tried a little bit on the south side. But we were on full alert, watching and waiting, and thankfully nothing major happened. But it doesn't have to be major if, if that gets out into the community for people to be afraid to go exercise their right to vote. But when I step back now after a number of years uh, you know, in, in private practice and looking back in my involvement there, it's not necessarily just these sort of way out radical groups with the, you know, wearing the pistols and stuff that you have to be careful about. It's right in front with those elected legislators that are passing these laws. It's right out front where they are front and center telling you voter fraud. But voter fraud 
as he has correctly mentioned, is really uh, uh, almost non-existent in this country. Almost non-existent, but it has been used as a code word, much like the term states' rights, right? On its face, well, what's wrong with states having rights? Sounds good, but it's a code word for what they're really doing. There, they were trying to, to uh, maintain the status quo of segregation, fight civil rights with the code word of states' rights. Here, they're trying to uh, do similar things under this guise of voter fraud, voter integrity. So it's not, it's not a, a, a hidden conspiracy. It's an out-in-the-open conspiracy. A group uh, called Voter Integrity Project started in 1996, and, of course, the efforts predated it long before that, to try to dismantle the voting uh, Rights Act and the various provisions. So th there's legislators that are using non-existent problems to try to restrict people from voting, creating these barriers, whether it be ID, whether it be uh, things that cost money. For example, if you have to go out and get your birth certificate, which was one of the issues in Texas, to, to pass that, for example, a college ID was insufficient to, to show that you could be registered to vote in Texas. But if you had an open gun license to carry your, your weapon, that was good. Right? So why the difference? So Texas, you know, surprisingly, the, the district court there uh, uh, threw out the Texas uh, voter registration, voter ID law, excuse me, and, and the Fifth Circuit, to its credit, upheld it, but in a very narrow fashion. And, and the key is this, and this is where the battleground is right now. Since the Supreme Court struck down Shelby uh, a few years, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, um, which was saying we don't do preclearance anymore. It's outdated. We don't, we don't do that. Um, what is the Justice Department, and to their credit, they have focused on is, is taking on jurisdictions and suing them for these changes. He mentioned the jurisdictions that right away, as soon as the preclearance law disappeared, by virtue of this Supreme Court decision, a bunch of states rushed out and passed these laws or, or worked to implement them again. Um, and and uh, so in Texas, uh, there's a section of the law, it's section two. That is where a jurisdiction is, in, is discriminating against voters of a protected class. So section two, you can either prove intentional discrimination, like they meant to, to discriminate against this class of voters, or the effect is one of discrimination, right? So much harder to prove intent to discriminate because it has to be purposeful. You have to prove that these legislators quite literally were like, we're going to stop these Mexicans from voting. We're going to stop these people. Remember Hoopenthal? I'm going to stop La Raza. Right? That kind of proof, but not, it's not always out there in the open. So then the question is what the Fifth Circuit did on appeal. It said, yes, this violates uh, uh, Voting Rights Act because it impacts, impacts minorities in Texas. Um, and and the, the, the decision, although it was a victory, the Court of Appeals restricted it and sent it back to say, you need more proof of real discrimination. This is really not a poll tax like the federal judge actually found that these effects were like a poll tax on people trying to get to register to vote. So that's a good thing, but it's still up in the air, and the battleground is going to be, well, what are, the, what are the effects? How are the ways you can prove these effects to then strike down a law? And the question now is, if you strike down a law, does that automatically mean it's unconstitutional? So those are issues that eventually are going to wind up in the Supreme Court. It might go to a full panel in the Fifth Circuit there. Uh, which is a very, the most conservative uh, appellate district or circuit in the country. Uh, and then there's uh, just last month on July 15th, I believe it was in North Carolina, another voting rights trial brought by the U.S. Department of Justice began. 
and that was a similar uh, law and also striking down, it was a law that barred same-day registration. Things like that that make it easy for people who are qualified to vote to just register and vote. Why wouldn't you want that? Why wouldn't you want everybody's voice to be heard? So that trial began uh, July 15th, uh, to my understanding, it's still ongoing. But the big takeaway from all this is that it's an ongoing battle. You have people that are using these sorts of uh, sort of phrases and, and missions which, which have no real problem underneath, and it has gone back for years and years. You may recall this bit of history as well. When President George W. Bush was president, he actually was pushing his U.S. attorneys, who are appointed positions across this country, to go after this purported, quote-unquote, voter fraud. Several of those, including in New Mexico, said there's nothing here. And guess what? They were basically fired and removed from their positions. It was a big scandal. There were probably 12 federal U.S. attorneys, the quote-unquote ministers of justice for our federal system, that were sacked because they said, well, there's nothing here, but they had these marching orders coming from essentially the political wing of the White House at that time to go after this issue, which does not exist for the most part. Certainly, you can always find a few examples, but we don't legislate by example. We, ex we should legislate by fact and by what's really happening. And this is a battle that's going to continue, and we need everybody to understand this and understand it's not a conspiracy. It's right in our face. And if we want the country that we deserve, we're going to have to stand up and continue the fight to protect the right to vote and to increase participation, not restrict it, not restrict it by whether it's ID in Arizona we, or, or, for example, and I'll end with this. After it went all the way to the Supreme Court, Prop 200 that, that uh, required Arizona, Arizona said you had to have proof of citizenship on the voter forms. The Supreme Court struck it down and said that violated the, the uh, uh, Voting Rights Act. But the Supreme Court said, but that's only for federal elections, U.S. Supreme Court. So if you, you know, this doesn't apply to state, state elections. So then in our state, then Attorney General Tom Horn and Secretary of State Ken Bennett go off and say, well, that's great. We'll just create a dual system, two systems for voting. People that register using the federal form that don't have to show proof of citizenship, even if they are citizens, they attest under oath, declare under penalty of perjury, I am a U.S. citizen. We, we don't care about that. We'll just have a different election over here. Crazy. So they, are, they will go to the extent of entirely creating a dual system that creates more confusion, costs more money, to affect a, a non-existent problem just to push an ideological agenda that restricts power to the people or power coming from the people. So thank you very much for having me, Congressman. I know I've uh, gone way over, but you should never hand me a microphone before I've had two cups of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> that was Attorney Vince Rabago from Keeping the Promise, a community panel on the Voting Rights Act at the Tucson YWCA on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Up next, remarks by Congressman Raul Grijalva, who introduces Pastor Grady Scott. That Vince mentioned, there was less than 1,000 voters that used the federal side in that voting, in that, in that election, and it cost the state $500,000 to maintain that bifurcated system. Um, and, you know, Factually, I, I think it's, I just wanted to point out some really, I think, important things. It's uh, going over the restrictive laws that have appeared in, in those, in 25 states, uh, NAACP and other group primarily did a study about 
effect, margin of victory. And, you know, in North Carolina, uh, estimated number of voters affected was 200,000. The margin of victory in that Senate race was 48,000. In, in Virginia, the estimated number of voters affected was about 198, 100, almost 198,000. Margin of victory in that Senate race, 16,000 votes. So, and you have a good example in Arizona. I think uh, 822 ballots rejected on various state objections in District 2, uh, Congressional District 2. Margin of victory, 164. So there is consequence to, to the rejection of votes and the suppression of votes in particular. I think there was one election in Scottsdale for a school, Mesa School District. The margin of victory for that school, it was a pivotal race. It was a three to two majority. And the, the victor got won by 19 votes. The ballots that were rejected based on state law and lack of verification and all that, provisional ballots included, 19. So that was the entirely the margin of victory. I, I want to now introduce uh, Reverend Grady Scott, a uh, friend, has uh, presided over uh, Grace Temple Baptist Church for 25 years. He serves as the liaison for the Minister's Alliance of Tucson, a volunteer chaplain at the Pima County Adult Detention Center. His contributions are recognized throughout the community, receiving the NAACP Community Service Award, the Urban League Henry Ryan Community Service Award, and uh, a, a strong, solid voice that, uh, that brings a moral imperative to the discussions that we always have that seem to get, we seem to lose sight that there's something deeper going on here than, than what we're talking about. I, uh, we're priv I'm privileged to call him my friend and to extend to him the opportunity for some comments. Sir. Reverend? First, thank you, Congressman, for the opportunity to share an issue that's so important to me, important first as an American. Uh, the right to vote, I believe, is one that should be uh, treasured by every American, but also as an African-American. Uh, it's very special to me, very important to me, because uh, our ancestry suffered at the hands of those who did not want us to vote. I remember at the age of seven, maybe eight years old, my father took me to the polls. Of course, we couldn't go in. They didn't have kid voting at the time. But he wanted us to understand that voting was important, probably because my dad was not allowed to vote. But now he wanted to make sure that all of his children understood the importance of voting. And I have voted in every general election since 1976. With that, you can probably guess how old I am. But it's very important. <laughs> that we always treasure the right to vote and we need to make sure that people don't repeat history. If we are not careful, they will rewrite history. And the only way history can be rewritten is if those who lived it don't say anything or are silenced. And African Americans, Latinos, Every segment of our community must ensure that the right to vote never goes away. 
we have to be careful that if a person born in this country wants to vote, whether that's whatever party they want to vote for, that's their right. I have a right to vote. It's not a privilege, it's a right. The danger in taking away the right to vote, it takes away the opportunity for people to control or impact or influence their destiny. And there seems to be, there seems to be some people in our, in our government that want to control our destiny without giving us the opportunity to share in that control. And I'm afraid that if we allow the Voting Rights Act, uh, let me say that removing the Shelby component is really, I believe, just a beginning. We have to be careful that we don't allow the entire Voting Rights Act to erode. Congressman, I've always been concerned that the Voting Rights Act has to come up for renewal. Many laws have been passed in this country and they become the law of the land and they remain the law of the land. But we continually vote on the right for African Americans to have the right to vote. There's something inherently wrong with that. Other people are able to vote just because they were part of this country. But we historically have to say, please, give us the right to vote. And we have to look no further than August of last year, the city of Ferguson, Missouri, where a predominantly African-American community was led by a completely Anglo legislature or, or city government. African Americans did not vote. It was not that they could not vote, it was that they did not vote. And some will say, well, why didn't they vote? You have to understand frustration. The voting rights are, sorry, poll tax, all the things that they used to do for African Americans in order for them to pass so they could be qualified to vote. If you passed them all, you could vote. But they made the questions and the test so difficult and the tax so high that African Americans could never reach that standard. So they became frustrated. And what we saw, I believe now, I'm not from Missouri, but I believe that when people lose hope that their vote is going to make a difference, they don't vote. What we need to do, not only make sure that people have the right to vote, but we need to encourage people to vote. We need to continue, especially those of minority communities. You need to vote. It's important for you to vote. And the only way we can do, when, when people are allowed to change the rules, they're allowed to make you feel like you have to go beyond what other people have to go through, frustration mounts. To piggyback on what you shared, my mother was born at home. That's typically what happened with African Americans back in her generation. She was not issued a birth certificate. Years later, when she wanted to register to vote, she was given a record of birth, but not a birth certificate. There are some that say that that's not really a birth certificate. There are many others that were born in the South, that were born in my parents' generation, 
that never received a birth certificate. Some never got any at all, never filed or anything. And my mom did not really um, find out until we were already in school the date of her birth. And we were celebrating it on the 5th of January. My mom was born on the 28th. So it's, it's, uh, that's something that's part of our past, part of our history. But I think what we have to address in this nation is the fact that we still have a problem. And for those who say that there's no discrimination in this country, all oh, that we could change places for a few weeks, you would see that there's still discrimination in this country. And there are people who don't believe that uh, we should have the rights that we have. I'll end with this, and someone's going to say, how could you end with that? I'm a preacher, but I've got a clock over here. I'm looking at it, and I could preach for 25 more minutes, but I'll just say this. When President Barack Obama was running in 2008, someone said, are you going to vote for him because he's African-American? And I said, no, I'm going to vote for him because I like his policies. I like what he stands for. I believe that he's going to be good for this country. I'm also voting because there are people who are not going to vote for him because he's African-American. So they may cancel out my vote, but I'm going to make sure that this country knows that I have that right. So again, Congressman, thank you for that opportunity. Thank you. That was Pastor Grady Scott from Keeping the Promise, a community panel on the Voting Rights Act at the Tucson YWCA, on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Speakers discussed the promise it continues to hold for countless Americans and the ongoing efforts to undermine that promise 50 years after it became law. This has been Part 2. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Shager.